Welcome to the Challenging the Way We Age podcast, hosted by the Mavericks of Senior Living, Francis and Catherine, focusing on creativity, ingenuity, and inspiration to educate and inspire changes in the senior experience, breaking the status quo and creating hope for the way we age. We want to thank our title sponsor during Denver Startup Week 2019, iAging. We want to thank our supporters, Assured Assisted Living, Serenity App, Sevens Home Care, Sevens Residential Memory Care, and Workability Co-working Space. Now get ready for the next episode. Good afternoon, you Mavericks. I'm Francis Lagasse, your Chief Curiosity Maverick, and I'm here with... Catherine Wells, your Chief Inspiration Maverick. And we are coming to you from Denver Startup Week at Workability. It has been a fantastic week, and it's only been two days, where we've been focusing on the longevity economy. And so we are proud to have a fantastic guest from Nimble, which is NYMBL, Mr. Nathan Estrada, the Director of Clinical Operations and Outcomes. Mr. Estrada, thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. I'm glad to meet uh, passionate people. <laughs> That's awesome. So, um, Mr. Estrada, can you tell us a little bit about just kind of what Nimble is? It, it's a it's an awesome name, but yeah, just kind of let our listeners know. No, so Nimble Science is really based on the foundational mission of preventing million falls. And as a result of that, we look at, um, at older adults and balance training far different than what's currently existing. Because the reality of it is, is my grandfather, um, if he wants to have intervention, has to either have a clinician come like myself, mm-hmm. or he's got to go to the rec center. And only one out of 10 older adults are willing to do that. So that means that we have this unintervened population of 90%. And we, what we do historically as a kind of as a country, we just keep on rebranding the rec center program, right? And we just say, hey, silver sneakers, yeah, or silver and fit, or you know, all the different things. Yeah. Matter of balance, and they're all really good programs. But if my granddad won't go, then it doesn't matter. And so uh, what we're doing is we're empowering older adults, you know, leveraging the technology they already possess in their home, so they can do balance training. And as a result of that, we um, really focus on what older adults like and make balance training fun and not clinical. Because huh. it doesn't have to be miserable to exercise. It doesn't have to be this hour long. They've been shrudgery. lying to me all these years. Right? And very specifically, balance is a reflex, but we tend to treat it like strength where you have to do this hour long Can you elaborate a little bit more on how balance is a reflex? I'm intrigued so, by that. So balance as a reflex is important to note because it's it's not an executive function. So if you stumble, oh. you don't have to think about stepping. Uh, your brain does it for you before you knew you fell. But we tend to train balance with attention and executive function. And so what happens is the cerebellum is where reflexes live. And a lot of people struggle to think about, well, how do you train a reflex? Uh, if you touch a hot stove, can you pull your hand away any faster if you thought about it? I don't think so. You can't. And okay. the reason why you can't is because you pull your hand away before you have the ability to think. You only know you touch something hot after your hand's away. So that reflex is really fast. Um, so if you want to train the reflex, the most important factor is how recently you touched something hot previously. So if I touch a hot stove tomorrow, I actually pull away faster because I recently had an insult that would say, hey, hot, pull away. And I get to practice my reflex. Interesting. Okay, that but makes we, sense. But we don't do that with older adults. What we do is we say, hey, once a month, I want you to go to some balance class that lasts an hour long. And then they don't train anything day to day. So really balance is closer to nutrition than strength. It's actually the little things that you do every day so that you shorten the duration from the last time they experienced it. But also, balance as a reflex means that um, the number one reason why older adults fall is they don't feel the fall. And if you interview them, you say, well, what happened? And what they look at you and they go, I don't know. The first thing I know is my face hit the ground. And that's a real answer. 
And what that really means is their alarm systems that told them that they were losing their balance or in the process of falling never went off. So all that mobility that they've been training never got to get used. And so you have to first train people to sense falling. And then the cerebellum, where those plans happen, have to have a plan available. In other words, recently experienced it. And then all that physical mobility that we do suddenly comes in, and then we step to regain. Uh Most programs avoid the first two hurdles, and we're one of the first people to really go, actually, let's take care of the easy stuff. I can train you how to sense yourself falling so that next time it happens, you have a quicker reaction. Because the speed of reaction is far more important than how Olympic and powerful you are. True. Because it's just a step, right? Uh, that's true, yeah. And how do you do that? What does it look like when you're doing this? So what that looks like is you can't allow the brain to cheat. And the brain is super good at doing it wrong, <laughs> right? And if you give someone a choice and you say, I want you to do balance, they love to focus on it. They love to think about what their ankles, knees, and hips are doing. So what we do is we take away that option and we give them a cognitive challenge that eats up their bandwidth. So, like, for instance, if I had you stand on one leg and I had you do something silly like count backwards from 92 by 7s, it would take enough thought for you that suddenly your cerebellum would take over that physical action of weight shifting and keeping your balance while you're distracted. So we pair a cognitive challenge with every physical challenge forcing you to do the right pathway, which is when I'm distracted, I still have to control my balance. And so when you look at older adults and they fall, they fall far more often because of distraction and not focusing than they do on their physical ability. It's not like gravity finally won and they melt to the ground. No, <laughs> they, they stumble on something silly while thinking about something else. Right. And they don't have the cognitive bandwidth to do both. And sometimes the brain makes a bad decision to focus on the distraction. So rather than avoid that, why don't we just tell older adults that's something you can improve? Right? We don't have to give in. Okay, you can't walk and talk, and you go to a doctor, and his first reaction, well, don't do that. And I say, yeah, right. yeah, and my tough. first reaction is fire your doctor. <laughs> and here's why, is the minute you stop challenging your deficit is the minute you accept that as the new normal. Oh. And that is not empowerment. That's actually accepted decline. Oh. And why, why would we ever put that? Instead of, if you can't walk and talk, why don't we practice smaller versions of that and regain the ability rather than avoid it out of fear. Wow, that is powerful. That is really powerful. That is the money quote right there. Yeah, that, I mean, that falls exactly what we've always talked about. It's challenging how we're aging. Quit accepting the status quo. There's nothing normal about it, and there's nothing normal about falls. No. Right, most falls are preventable. Only, Only a third of older adults fall every year. We assume it's everybody. And as a result of that, it's frequent enough that we've normalized it. Everyone goes, well, if I fell, so did my friends fall, right? So that was like a badge of honor, would you call it maybe? Like, oh, I fell, my friend fell, cool. Well, I think it's an acceptance, and it's an appropriate uh, okay. acceptance. Okay. Right, uh, like I'm not the only one. I'm not the only my, one. My and friend it, fell. And it makes so me feel I'm better okay. about that. Yeah. But then what happens when you normalize it? Well, then I don't have a problem. I'm just normal. Why would I intervene? That's also why it's toxic to screen for falls. So what happens when you tell an older adult they're not at risk for falls? Uh, they fall? I don't uh, no, they, have, they have no motivation to intervene. They don't have a problem. Um, do you prevent anything uh, by telling someone that they don't have a risk? No. No. Okay, so I have a question. Uh, I have an elderly father, and he is at high risk for falls, and they tell him that pretty regularly at the place that he lives. Which is terrible. And that that was my question. So you just don't tell them anything then, right? Because I know if you tell them they're not at, at risk for falling, then... 
they don't have any reason to intervene. But the more you tell my dad he is at risk for falling, the less he's going to want to intervene. So the psychology of brokenness is what you're really talking about. That if you tell, and I like to think about it as children first, because we're all the same experience, but we all can relate to this better as a, as a child. If you have a teacher that says you're bad at math, you're bad at math. You're bad at math. Uh, I suddenly am bad at math, aren't I? Right. I am. That's who I am. Yep. An older adult, when they hear that they're at risk for falling, they don't hear they're at risk for falling. They hear, you're going to lose your independence. I'm going to move you out of your home. Yeah. I, I, you don't have the right to make your own decisions. You're so broken that I have to put a little badge on your wrist to remind everyone how broken you are. And by the way, on the ceiling, I'm going to put a little cone that says, call before you fall, because you're not even healthy enough to sit up in bed on your own. And so what we do oh, is we, we tell people they're so broken that they then feel defeated, and that defeatedness then results in inaction and fear. The second greatest predictor of falls is fear. And we have done such a great oh. job of making falls a fear-driven intervention. Um, and I don't know if you guys know this, but in the last 16 years, we have doubled the mortality rate for falls in the United States. Uh, wait, How? Wait, can you say that yeah. doubled? We have doubled the mortality can rate. Can you elaborate so, on that for me? Because that blows my mind. Yeah, so we've spent millions of dollars preventing falls, right? And so we have a steady protocol mm -hmm. and we have... We thought that if we just told clinicians to talk about it more, that older adults would intervene more often. When's the last time you made fun of someone and it motivated them to act in a positive way? Right? Uh, I, I, I have two young kids, and I'll say I, never. I, I was going to say, can you talk to my brother? But, but let's talk about that a little bit. So every time an older adult hears they're at risk, they hear I'm broken. Mm -hmm. And eventually, if you feel broken enough, you go, well, maybe it's safer for me just to sit here. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't fall if I'm, if I'm not doing anything. And they self-select to live smaller lives. Mm -hmm. Because when you avoid risk, you have to live a smaller life. A smaller life results in deconditioning. Deconditioning results in weakness. Weakness results in risk. And then suddenly, when someone told your father or grandfather that they're at severe risk, what they're really saying is, you shouldn't move. Yeah. So, so basically, could you say you're encouraging the isolationism that we're seeing across seniors? 100% is, uh, why would an older adult risk losing their independence when they're broken to walk outside? So they start homebounding themselves. They become socially isolated. Right. And then we deal with all those social determinants of health. And so, you know, we talked about that doubling. And yep. at 75 and above, we've doubled. And there's almost a direct correlation of when we started investing in the conversation of risk, that's truly when the psychology of brokenness elevated. And then people started homebounding themselves. And then suddenly we have, you are, you are safer falling 10 years ago than you were today. You're twice as likely to die from a fall today than you were. Why, why are you yeah. so, why are you, what's the increase in death like? Why, why well, are we seeing that? So when I look at it is, it's really intriguing. Uh, when you remove danger from someone's world, which is the current strategy, right? You're broken, you're a high risk, and by the way, take away all your throw rugs. Let's make sure that you don't have any danger in your life. Let's put a grab bar everywhere. And by the way, uh, steps, maybe those aren't appropriate anymore. When you remove the stimulus, you actually removed any of the ability to tolerate it. So here's a good example. Um, show me an environment without any trip hazards, and I'll show you an environment where no one lifts their feet anymore. 
Why would you lift your feet? Hmm. There's wow. no there's no need right. to because there's no consequence. You you don't trip on anything because there's nothing trippable. So when you huh. sterilize the world, you leave people unprepared for the world that actually exists. The only world they can exist in is their sterile environment, and that's not very big, is it? It's, it might be their bedroom, it might be the kitchen, it might be the bathroom, and then suddenly everything outside is dangerous. And by the way, you're broken, and any moment now you could fall, and then you're gonna lose your independence. And that's how we encourage inactivity and loss of ability through the psychology of brokenness. That resonates really clearly with me. Uh, my grandfather had Parkinson's, and he passed, he'll, I think this November will be seven years since he passed. And that was his, once he kind of, he, he started the shuffling and he didn't want to work with the PT, he didn't want to do any of that stuff because he felt, I don't need this. But he kept taking, sliding his feet. So it was, you know, you put him on the sidewalk and he'd possibly get caught on, on a crack because the house was so flat. I mean, they had first floor everything. He never, so he didn't know how to do it he anymore. Stopped, exactly. He lost mm-hmm. his, I don't know, motor skills or whatever it is to pick his feet up. And it's really tough. I mean, Parkinson's is a little bit unique because that's of course. a keystone symptom. Right. But it is really intriguing. When you look at the research, um, when you remove stimulus, you remove training. Hmm. And there's this amazing program that they do in the Netherlands. And so rather than tell people they're broken, what they do is they put them on an obstacle course of danger. And what, it's amazing. So they make yeah, them do all cool. these really crazy hard things. Okay. And then suddenly the older adult goes through that process. And there's actually a local hospital that does it here too. It's Lutheran. Lutheran sends older adults through an obstacle course. And what happens, the first time an older adult does it, they look at it and they go, I'm broken. There's none of this I could do. And they go through it and they're terrified. Okay. And then they come back the next week to do it again. They look, they said, last time I did bad, but I, I can do this. And they go through and they say, well, actually... This one's not as hard as I thought it was. Uh-huh. And then the third time, and then the fourth time, by the fourth time they go through the optical course, here's what they look like. Hey, I'm good at 90% of this. It's only the 10% that I should be watching out for. And since it's only the 10%, I think I could intervene. I could practice that. And so it's actually leave empowered That's cool. rather than terrified. This is so in line with parenting as well. Just the, the whole concept of as you're raising children, you don't tell them you can't do it. You, you encourage them to try new things. And if you do tell a child, no, I, you can't ride that bike, you're gonna fall, you're too little, you know, whatever it is, they're not gonna attempt any of that. Um, I'm watching this live with my, my father right yeah. now. I'm watching the very things that you're describing and it's painful and very hard. So tell us more about Nimble. It, is it a protocol? Is it, do you come into the home? Do you, how does it work? So the first thing that we care about is if it takes people, it doesn't scale, right? <laughs> um, and so okay. we've removed people from the equation. And what that means is right now we partner with large organizations like insurance companies or senior living environments and they offer to their constituents or their members. And they get access and they download the Nimble training app on iOS or Android, phones or tablets, so just smart devices. And it starts them off on some basic questions that would risk stratify what's the most appropriate spot to start exercise because we have different health and different abilities. And then what we do on our side is we offer um, exercises that are general functional things, things that you would do naturally during the day. Uh, so you don't have to do Olympic events, uh, but you do normal functional movements. And then you overlay that with a cognitive challenge that's perceived as a game. And people focus on the game hmm. while they're doing that physical movement, so distracted, and then suddenly the cerebellum takes over the reflexes. And it's funny 
because it's designed to be where you're, you're not supposed to know all the answers and you're not supposed to get everything right. And so it's like, well, I, I didn't know that or I, you know, I didn't imagine that that would be or I got that wrong, I wanna get better. And when you gamify balance, you get two main things. Number one, it's fun, right? right? Mm -hmm. But number two is it's something that you can easily do every day because it doesn't feel like exercise. I don't know if you guys have had this experience. If you've ever ran on a treadmill, it's a life-sucking event. Absolutely. Right? Oh, it's yeah. a terrible, terrible <laughs> yeah. thing. What we do to tolerate it is we listen to music. And you no longer uh, or perceive watch time TV. or you watch TV, mm -hmm. but you no longer perceive time or effort mm -hmm. when you're distracted. Uh, we're all that way. Older adults are the same. So if you give them a cognitive challenge, they no longer perceive it. And most people perceive 10 minutes as five. So it's about a 50% cutoff on exertion. Mm -hmm. So think about that. If I give you a 10 minute intervention, you only felt it was five and you go, that's it? Well, yeah, that's it, we'll see you tomorrow. Well, I could do that every day and that's the secret. Uh, it's giving something that they can do every day easily because what really matters is that they do it. Right. And then it's just a matter of therapeutic dose at that point. How often do you have to do that to have an outcome? Can you talk a little bit about therapeutic dose? When you, you know, What does that mean exactly? So whenever you're looking at any kind of treatment, right? Uh, so let's use existing interventions like a medication. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you wanted to have a pain-relieving dose of ibuprofen, it could be 200 milligrams. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to have an anti-inflammatory dose, it takes 600 milligrams. Okay. okay. So they're not the same thing. Well, exercise has the same concept, that oh. there's a minimal amount that you have to do before there's a known outcome. For strength training, it's an hour a week. Okay. So if you don't do an hour a week of strength training, you're actually not increasing your strength to any great degree. Wow. Okay. Um, for balance, what we found is the therapeutic threshold is really low, uh, that it's actually 10 minutes a day, three times a week. So a total dose of 30 minutes for four weeks wow. is enough to move the needle. And our clinical trials are really kind of fun. That's because cool. what we showed it at 21 <laughs> days is that sway, which is kind of the gold standard, I want you to imagine standing on a force plate that could measure how much you're moving and how much you can keep your center of gravity over your feet. Because, by the way, if your center of gravity leaves your feet, that's called a fall. Right. <laughs> and so if your center of gravity stays over your feet, we were able to reduce that by 67% at 21 days. Wow. And get this, in our population studies in the, in the real world, right outside of the lab, half the people at the severe risk for falls, like your family member, mm -hmm. left the high-risk category altogether. And here's what that really means, and I wanted to correct you on this a little bit, not correct you, but enhance you. Um, when someone says that you're a severe risk for falls, do you know what they're really saying? On average, you're predicted fall twice that year. So if you took 100 people wait, and wait, wow. you said every all 100 are a severe risk, you would expect 200 falls in, the, in that group. When you take someone out of the high-risk category, you're actually predicted to be a non-faller because it's a yes-no category, it's not a gradient. And those screening tools are designed to find non-fallers, not fallers. That's how oh, all screening gosh. tools work. I You're looking to screen out people who don't have the problem. So if you physically pass above thresholds, that say that you're not at risk for falling, what that really means is that your risk for falling is so low that you don't need further assessment. Uh, so our standard is we wanna see how many older adults we can get that were in the high risk category and make them physically perform out of that category 30 to 60 days later. Because in our minds, that's two falls prevented. And that's how we're gonna get to a million. That's awesome. That we need to raise the level of awareness on this conversation right here. 
uh, we need to keep talking about it. How are you getting the word out to yeah. people? So right now we partner with um, with senior living organizations okay. because here's what we found. As much as I would like to say everyone is altruistic and wants to solve falls, let's have a really honest thought that if you're fee for service, when people fall in their own home, hospitals make money. <laughs> I know that's a terrible thing to say. But, but it's the reality it's of the world reality. we live in. And I'll tell you what, I've talked to some hospital providers that are terrified of nimble preventing a thousand falls in their geography because some of those falls are orthopedic surgeries where they make a lot of money. And so oh, the, the, the possible losses are massive. So what we do is we work with at-risk organizations okay. where there's consequences of the fall. And there's two main ones. A senior living, when someone falls, one in five falls is an injury. And an injury is classified as a fracture or a head injury. Okay. So if one in five falls in that environment is a fracture or head injury, how many of those people are still living thereafter? I'd they move out. Say a right? lot move out, I'm guessing. And right. the acquisition cost for a senior living environment of one new resident is about $5,000 plus one month's rent. And so that's a significant financial aid. Every time someone falls, breaks a hip, and moves out, what we don't realize is that senior living just took an eight to $9,000 hit of recouping that person and getting someone new to move in. Mm -hmm. So we partner with them and say, wouldn't it be nice not to have that? Mm -hmm. Where you don't have people falling as often and you don't have the move outs, you could keep the people you have today because it's cheaper than finding new ones. True. Um, so that's the first one. And by the way, you're helping Improve quality yes, of life. I agree, but what I found <laughs> is that what selling quality of life is a hard ROI. I understand. They can't I, track uh, it, right? Yeah, yeah you can't. Yeah. And it's actually intriguing because most people struggle with the whole idea of preventing falls because how do you measure something that doesn't happen? Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, so then what we do is we go to the payer market and we say, you know what? We've committed that older adults shouldn't be paying for their preventative measure when other people profit. So here, I'm going to say that a different way. Yeah, yeah, that, I, I think I know what you're saying. If your insurance company saves $2,500 every time you don't fall, why would your insurance company not pay for programs for you? They should be obligated because they're the people at risk. Uh, yeah, yeah. And by the way, that's the price of a fall for an insurance company. $2,500? $2,500 whether you're injured or not. Every, every fall costs, and that's just hospital cost. When you take post-acute costs like rehab and home health and all those fun joys, it's over $5,000 per fall. And if you had surgery in there, is that even more? Oh, no? Well, I mean, the reason why it's so high is because of one in 19 falls is an orthopedic surgery. One in 19? One in 19. Wow. That's so think high. about that. Is if you have 20 falls, one person had an orthopedic surgery, okay? Um, four of those people had a significant injury. And by the way, three of those people went to the ER. <sighs> And so you think about the cost involved in a relative small population, it gets really big really quick. So it's our belief that why wouldn't your insurance invest in making you fall less often or maybe make you not fall at all? Uh, because we don't want older adults to have any barriers. And we do this a lot in healthcare where we say, if you want to be well, you pay for it. Right. We're pushing back at that and saying, you know what, when they don't fall twice, that's a $5,000 value to you. Uh, why don't you just pay us 100 instead? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because uh, that makes sense. It's a, it's a great ROI on your side. Mm -hmm. And so we are in, launching in three medical advantage plans uh, oh, for cool. Medicare in 2020. Uh, it's a long sales cycle, so mm -hmm. it's been really exciting. Can and, you tell us the name of those or no? Are you not able to yet? Well, no, I think I can. Um, so we'll be in three Cigna plans. Oh, cool. And then we'll be in a Blue Cross plan as well. That's awesome. Um, That's congratulations. That's thank huge. You. Yeah, it's a big but deal. It's, it's how we're going to get to a million. Yeah. Uh, so can I ask, how are you seeing this for cognitive impairment? You know, is there a point with, you know, 
I, obviously, I, this most recent stat I heard, I think this is right, I don't have it in front of me, is about 85% of those moving into assisted living have some type of cognitive impairment. How does this work with someone that has a form of dementia? So, obviously, dementia is a continuum, right? right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, what we look at is most older adults, when we look at fall risk, cognition is the primary reason why fall risk goes up. That's why we see the most falls in memory care. Right. Uh, it's not that people are still physically weak. We talked about they're not melting to the ground. Right. They have a cognitive bandwidth issue. Okay. And it's very specific to a, a trigger. When you can no longer tolerate two things at once, that's the greatest indicator of someone's true risk going up. Because the brain has to decide, do I pay attention to distraction or do I pay attention to my motor control or balance? Okay. And I can't do both at the same time. Okay. So you can startle someone and they fall. Right. Right? And so ultimately, here's how we address that, is Nimble is designed to help people tolerate and to better manage distraction by making them move all the time in a distracted state. Okay. What that does is the next time that happens in nature, the cerebellum goes, don't worry, I, I got, got this. Yeah, uh, it I strengthens this. that I've muscle. I've been practicing yep. That's cool. this yeah. the whole That's time. Cool. Mm-hmm. And I've been practicing it in functional ways. And so when the brain has to step to the left and you haven't been doing a lot of sidestepping, well, we do that all the time. It's available. <laughs> and we talked about that reflex, right? Uh-huh. The most important factor is how recently you practiced it. And so since it's 10 minutes every day and something you can easily do every day, we allow them to have a really recent occurrence to where they needed that skill. And now when they truly need it because they stumble, it's available and ready to use. That's and they cool. catch themselves. That Now that's cool. So uh, is there... Do they automatically do this every day, or is someone guiding them and prompting Both. them? Okay. Both. And so here's what we found, is we do have a balance evaluation that we use, not everywhere, but what we'd like to stratify is, what's the most important environment that you can find success? And in the balance evaluation, it's zero to 100, not a yes, no question. Okay. And it allows us to normalize where you sit in the continuum of balance, because your balance is different than mine, but neither one of us are at risk. And what's important to note is that if you want your balance to improve, having it measurable is an important part of your motivation. Um, So here's a good example is Jane is an 89-year-old female, and she scores a 42 out of 100. Uh, If you don't tell her any of her risk statistics and you just say 42, internally something really neat happens is she's motivated to go, do I like 42? Am I content with 42? And what does 42 mean? Right, okay. Right? Immediately, it connotates that there's improvement, a room for improvement, and that it sounds less than I'd like it to be. Okay. Okay. Then what we do is we let people know where they sit up according to their age-appropriate norms. So Jane is a 42, and she's the 30th percentile for her age. Suddenly, I now have normalized her, and she goes, wait, I'm not less than average of anything in my life. That is unacceptable, uh, yep. and I'm going to work gonna on it. I'm going to double down. Yeah. Here's the intriguing part. is She's not at risk for falls yet. Now, I now have someone who's motivated to intervene, which is the complete opposite when he said there wasn't a problem. Right. It's because she's less than average. But what if she was at risk or falls, right? What if she was a 31? Okay. And Jane now understands that, well, I'm the 10th percentile for my age. What I've been going through isn't normal. And if it's not normal, I shouldn't accept it. Maybe I do need help. Uh-huh. And it's a it's an activation pattern to get people to move to do and to participate rather than punitive saying you're broken. We simply mm-hmm. say you have room to grow and the what you're experiencing isn't normal. Would you like some help with that? That's cool. That's a that's 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 cool. So it's a different philosophy for sure. 
Um, so that's how we, we risk stratify. And it's important that we do that sometimes, uh, but not everyone needs that. Some people just want to improve their balance and we should give them a pathway to do that. How has your adoption rate been in senior living centers? Senior living centers, the adoption rate's really high when it comes to engagement. Um, now, it's interesting because you have to get past those first three barriers, which are, we're doing something about it already. Mm. Every senior living environment in the United States has some relative fall prevention class, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and it's, ta- it's highly variable. It's the Wild West. Yeah. It might be a really passionate volunteer. It might be an exercise professional. It might even be a doctorate level PT. Um, and there's different motivations for all three of those levels. But here's what it's not. It's not attended. You get the same five out of a hundred that attend those. And so remember I said that only one out of 10 older adults would leave their home. Guess what? Only one out of 10 older adults will leave their room, room. in yeah. assisted living. So that living. number doesn't change whether yeah. it's home or assisted living. It really doesn't. So when you look at engagement numbers, you say, well, how many people are attending your class? And I go, well, you know, five or six. I was like, how many new people? Uh, right? Because there, there should be some new people every right. once in a while. Right. No, it's the same five or six. Yeah. Um, so engagement is really the first barrier. So what we find is um, once we show them that there's an option that most people are willing to try rather than some, now you're really solving it in a bigger way. So what we find in an environment is that while only 5% do that, uh, we end up getting 30 to 40% of the whole building to try nimble and a quarter of the whole building has a therapeutic outcome. In other words, has that known outcome. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so you took five That's people cool. that were kind of having fun in a class and now you're five-fold improvement in impact and that impact is known. It's not hopes and dreams. They've done it enough to have real change. So does that answer the question? That it cool. does. And does that mean that the residents all come down to a room and participate, or do they also do it in their own room? So here's a go. What would you prefer? So that's the question, right? What's their preference? What's their preference? Thanks for listening. The Mavericks want to hear from you. Visit us on Facebook and Instagram.